Welcome to this episode of Bob Cooney's VR Deep Dive Podcast. In this series, Bob connects you with some of the leading innovators and thinkers in location-based VR. You know, when you look at the millennials today, experiences are so important to what they want to do, right? They want to come away with an experience. And I think that having the opportunity to do that with somebody else, which is what we offer, is so much more meaningful and enriching than doing it on your sofa, you know, all by yourself. Even though you're connected through a headset to people all over the world, perhaps, there's something about being able to take that headset off at the end of the game and go, wow, that was really cool, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that one of the things that I've, you know, I wrote an article for Replay Magazine called What is VR Really? And for me, it's just the next level of display technology, right? It's super immersive. So back, you know, so you were in this, you, you go back to say, we should talk a little bit about your background here. And maybe this can be the segue to that. So, you know, back in the early arcade games, we used CRTs, cathode ray tubes for all the new yeah, 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 yeah. right? that were like old school TVs. And then in the early 90s, it shifted to rear projection, right? And for me, that was about deeper immersion. Yeah. Know, because now you had a 46-inch screen really close to you. And there was a game, there was a Namco game, I think it was called Alpine Racer, right? Sure, yeah. that? And you'd yeah. get on skis and you'd hold poles and you were slalom skiing with this big 46-inch television in front of you. And it was super immersive. And for me... That was a version of virtual reality in the mid '90s. Like we yeah, would, now, right. we would yeah. call it immersive entertainment, but you know, back then that was the term I was using. And so that was about deeper immersion. And then we went through a cycle where the rear projection all went to LCD screens, right? Right. Which was about solid state, more reliability. So we went immersive, reliable, and now I feel like VR is the next display technology that drives immersion to the ultimate level. I completely agree. But, you know, the other thing, Bob, within that space and what we've really found from the amusement side, from the manufacturers that, you know, have traditionally been in this business is they found a better way, right? They found a better way. They found that, you know, oh, my God, the consumer business is crushing us in the video game business, right? What are we going to do? We got to create something you can't do at home. So what you speak to with the larger displays was scale. Yep. Right. And immersion. So we had now we got shifters on the cars and gas pedals and you sit down and maybe a motion based as well. But the other side of that, that is now probably in terms of the game set of a typical family entertainment center today, 70 percent or more are redemption or prize merchandising games. You cannot do that at home. So and this is something I've been writing about a lot, which is, you know, and I've got a very strong opinion on this that isn't necessarily popular with some of the manufacturing and operator segment, which is that's just gambling for kids. Right. They're kiddie casinos. And, And this is my opinion, not that of the association or anyone else. Right. So like this one's me. But what those games are doing is they're preying on the dopamine of little kids and they're giving them little rubber spider rings. And they're supposed to be skill based games. And oftentimes they're not. And you guys have done a great job, by the way of creating this, you know, fair, what is it called? The fair play pledge. Talk about that. And then I'll jump back on my soapbox. So it was not too long ago that people looked at the products we were manufacturing, whether they were cranes or instant merchandising games and feeling as though those were defrauding the playing public. And that wasn't a feel good for us. And we and had that was no- less in FECs and more in the street operators, right? More the it's route not, operators. It's really, it's really okay. across, you know, across the spectrum. Okay. okay. 
and so we really took a step back and thought about what it is we do. And it wasn't a feel good for anybody in the room. And the fact of the matter is, Bob, we had no drawer statement. That's what our lobbyists referred to it as. We didn't have a drawer statement that we could all pull out and have a uniform voice in response to these attacks by uh, legislators, by the media, by concerned parents and so forth, communities about the content of our games. And so we came up with a code of conduct that is a requirement of membership within the uh, AAMA that says the games we manufacture, distribute, and operate will give every player an opportunity for a successful outcome with every single play that they attempt. Are they going to win every time? No, some guys are better at something than others, but the opportunity exists. So, you know, the basketball will always fit through the hoop. The easiest way I can describe it is that the basketball will always fit through the hoop. Yeah. The hoop might be moving and, you know, you've seen basketball games where they move and so forth, but the opportunity to put the ball in the hole will always be there. Yeah. And, and that, that has to be really transparent to the consumer too, right? The player has to see that it's fair. And a lot of this stuff was happening kind of algorithmically in the background right. and it was driving the outcome instead of the skill really driving the outcome. That's right. right? That's and, right. Yeah. There were somewhat predetermined outcomes and uh, we've gotten completely away from that Good. as an, asso- certainly as an association and a desire. And, and that's really helped us out. Since we adopted that, there's been several instances where the content of our products have been challenged. And we have, you know, really asserted ourselves and saying, hold on a minute, that might be happening, but it's not happening with people within our, our space, yeah. within our association who ascribe to these. Uh, here's what we ascribe to, you know, and yeah. here's who we are. We have to comply with this code of conduct in order to be a member of AAMA. So it's, it's helped us out. And on one hand, I, you know, I've kind of mocked the fact that you actually had to do that because there was something about the fact that an association needs to create those rules that, you know, and I think in any industry, you know, people just get caught up in making a profit, right? And yeah. that, that's something that all businesses or, or industries struggle with. And so to get back to the consumer gaming industry, there's this thing called loot boxes. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but... Because the video game industry on the home side has gone to free to play, right? So now you play for free and publishers have had to figure out how to monetize those games so they can make money to develop them. And Fortnite's a great example. You know, I think last year was averaging $400 million worth of revenue for a free to play game a month. Sorry, $400 million a month. They did $3 billion in revenue last year, one game. And so they do that by convincing people to buy skins or buy things that make you perform better so you can progress faster through the game. And it started out in mobile games like Candy Crush and games like that would allow you to like Farmville where you could accelerate your progress by spending money. And then what happened is some publishers got carried away with that and they created these things called loot boxes. And loot boxes are kind of like you buy it and you might get something valuable in it. It's like the definition of gambling. And these are kids' games. And now Congress is looking at it and they're talking about legislating it. And and once it gets banned, which it will, it has to, you know, the publishers are all going to have to shift again. And I so I actually see that's a form of redemption. And it's actually happening now in the consumer space. And I've predicted in writing that the redemption market in five or 10 years is going to be gone because millennials don't gamble. Like the Vegas market is collapsing and you're seeing they don't they don't do slot machines. They don't do poker machines. And the casinos are trying to figure out what to do about that. And when they have kids and they start taking them to family entertainment centers, the last thing they're going to want to do 
is subject their kids to something that seems like gambling, even if it's got a skill wrapper around it. And so I've been urging the industry to get ahead of that and start to think about how do you replace redemption, which you've said is 70% of the typical FEC floor with what's next. And hopefully these more immersive social things that are based on VR, AR, emerging technology are going to be a piece of that. All right, I'm getting off my soapbox. Sorry. Yeah, I don't share your doom and gloom about uh, redemption equipment. I think that there's these are Rube Goldberg puzzles often. You know, yeah. it's like, oh my God, that's so creative and so cool. You know, there's a puzzle to it that you're trying to figure out and master. And I think also with regard, certainly with arcade sports games, uh, ski ball, I don't think is ever going to go away. Yeah. I think basketball that's games. That's a pure skill based competitive game, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that gets to that inherent competitiveness. But, you know, a game like Big Bass Wheel, sorry. Not to throw a member under the bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it even looks like a slot machine. Fuck, right? <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 again, I know I, you can't comment on that yeah, one, Pete. Yeah, Sorry yeah. to make you squirm a little bit. <laughs> He's like, look at him. He's like, oh, don't go there. <laughs> well, it's, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a skill-based game. And, you know, it's really interesting. So the other side of that is what Nick DiMatteo from Dave & Buster's, right, games director Dave & Buster's, he yeah. and I were at Amusement Expo in Vegas, and we were having a conversation about this very game. And, and the guys from Team Play had a new redemption game. And I was giving him my, it looked like a kind of like a pachinko game, right? Where there was a ball and you had to like work its way down into a slot. And I was telling him, I was like, there's no way this is a skill-based game. Huh? Fishball, yeah. And I said, there's no way you can convince me this is a skill-based game. And he hit the fucking jackpot five times in a row. And I'm like, I'm wrong. You got yeah, it. Yeah, and he yeah, was yeah. like, I was like, how the hell did you do this? He's like, it's what I do. You know, so, but my concern is to the uninitiated, that's not what it looks like. And I think what we have to do as an industry is we have to bring skill more to the front, skee-ball, basketball toss, et cetera, versus some of these games that to the uninitiated are going to look like not skill-based games. And I think that there's a whole generation that might look at those and go, no, thank you. And so- well, we are an adaptable business. I will tell you that. You know, we will follow the trends and find solutions to it. I mean, that's been the nature of this business um, for as long as I've been in it, and I'm sure before that. You know, there and we're a really creative community. You know, and so yeah, there's going to be things changing. We're going to have to adapt and change. So let's talk about that. So, what's the biggest thing that you've seen change? Like, so, how long have you been in the business, and where'd you? Let's a little bit of background. Like, where'd you start, and what have you done in your career that led you? I started you to in August, August fourth, nineteen eighty, at Valley wow. Pinball. It was a hundred and twenty thousand square foot factory with sixteen hundred employees putting out anywhere up to six hundred pinball machines a day. And I thought I started at GM. And at that point is when TV games were starting to come onto the scene. Of course, video games, right? And they just dominated the market. And pinballs were almost, you know, put you know into extinction. So this uh, is back in the analog. This is even before the digital pinballs hit then, right? No, digital-, digital had hit. There oh, were, digital had hit. Okay. Certainly, that was right at the time digital had made the transition completely over from the analog. And in fact, when I was hired, I was hired as a field service technician, and I would teach five-day service schools on how to fix digital pinball machines. So, uh, you know, yeah, we'd get groups of people together for five days of seminars on teaching you know how to fix pinball machines um 
it was a great time to be in the business. The pinball business was great, and then it wasn't. Yeah. So uh, made the transition. And now coming back again. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I told Gary Stern, you know, who's uh, uh, for a time there for several years, he was the only pinball manufacturer left in the world. And I told Gary that when you have competition, you'll know the business is safe. I'm happy to say he's got some very high quality competition. Because yeah. pinball to me is one of four things that's intrinsically American. It is pinball, bourbon, baseball and blues that's my list of four one p and three b's yeah awesome so i mean uh, um through the years i went from really in the manufacturer space i was in up until recently uh, my my last position before i took on this role was uh head of uh, sega north america well sega for the americas so my uh, uh domain went from you know hudson bay all the way down to the tip of argentina for the sega amusement side and i'd been involved with this association Prior to that, for probably 10 or 12 years, uh, served as the volunteer president. And, you know, when they started talking to me about taking this position, I, I was, I kind of, you know, scoff it off saying that hey, I'm a manufacturer, you know, that's what I do. But I realized two things. What we talked about earlier about raw thrills was two of Sega as well. We're not manufacturing stuff for the most part. We're having that manufactured someplace else as contract manufacturers. And we bring those games in. So, um, I was a volunteer president uh, for a couple of years and uh, just really enjoyed the energy and the sense of contribution that all these great people showed up with. So um, that's a good point. I just was asked to talk about the gala. Coming up in uh, September, we have our annual gala, which is a week-long get-together for members to um, both talk about the business of the association and probably the biggest valuable thing is the the networking that takes place. The gala is really a great gathering. It's probably the best thing we got going as an association. It starts off Monday and Tuesday are all the business of the association, which is the committee meetings and the board of directors meetings. Tuesday nights when the fun begins with a networking event. And then Wednesday we kick off with a program we started uh, early this year called FEC Connect. So Family Entertainment Center Connect. And the idea is to bring members together with FEC owner-operators to have a conversation and create relationships. That is really what it's about. It's not about selling games. It's not about selling services. It's not about selling parts and supplies. It's about building relationships. And those have proven to be remarkably positive. And I am very pleased to say that at the, and we're calling this one FEC Connect Lite, we're going to have two presenters at this one so far. Our host here, Mr. Cooney, will be making a presentation on VR. And we'll be joined by a guy by the name of Ed Resnan. Ed Resney is a former CEO of McDonald's. And he's going to talk to us about guest services. You know, what is it like, the guest experience? You know, how does McDonald's treat the guest experience? And I think that'll be a, a standing room-only event. As opposed uh, to mine, which will be like fucking well, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ed is also the fellow that uh, founded Ronald McDonald House. Mm. So this is a really remarkable man with a great story to tell. He started out as a fry cook at a McDonald's, I believe, in Ohio. Went up the ranks to become manager of that store. Ended up being a uh, regional manager, became a franchise owner, and then took out what moved up the uh, McDonald's corporate, where, as I said, he was um, a CEO for a number of years. So uh, rags to riches, great American story. So how do people get in the VR community? Like, who should come to this? And how do they, how do they get more information on it? 
So let me go along. So the FC Connect happens, and then we have product presentations, and those are sponsor presentations. So if you're a sponsor and a member of AEMA, you're going to have a TED Talk to talk about your products and services in an auditorium setting. We have a welcome dinner Wednesday night, more product presentations on Thursday, government relations luncheon, which is you know what's going on at the macro in D.C. right now, as well as what's going on at the micro as it affects our industry, presented by one of our lobbyists, uh, which happens to be Denton's. This is a little factoid not too many people realize. Denton's is the largest law firm in the world. And we happen to have them as our lobbying firm. So that's uh, they got over 9,000 lawyers working for them in a 174 offices in 56 countries around the globe. So wow. they are big. And that's really a, a nice feather in our cap that a little association like ours has, the, uh, has that kind of clout in Washington with our lobbying agency. So and that's, that's something that I know I've seen because John Schultz and I were, were friends. And I you know, watch you guys like bring constituents from the industry and go into – the halls of Congress and the yeah. House of Representatives and yeah. actually meet with politicians about driving agenda and, and absolutely we do that three times a year, a minimum of three times a year. We make our trips to DC and we don't take many more than eight or 10 people. We don't do these annual giant fly-ins where two, 300 people storm the Hill and, you know, they hit, countless offices. We're much more strategic. We make sure that the people attending will meet with their congressional office and their Senate offices because that that lands more with the legislator. Like, okay, here's a constituent. I really do care what he has to say. And oftentimes, Bob, what we talk about is uh, we go there with no ask. We don't have anything that we're needing at the moment. And, and in those instances, we talk to them about who we are and more importantly, who we're not. We talked earlier about the video, the home video systems, right? And they still, there are many legislators who still lump us in with violent video games and, and adult content in video games. And the fact of the matter is we have to be mom approved. We can't operate in a bedroom or in a basement out of the line of sight of mom. We're in the public space. And so as a result, the content of our game is pretty G-rated. If it weren't, people wouldn't be going to Chuck E. Cheese. They wouldn't be going to Dave & Buster's. They wouldn't allow their kids to do those things anyway. Yeah. So we want to send that message. And, and we also want to spend, send the message that we're primarily small businesses. And we are ubiquitous throughout the United States. I defy you to find a community in the United States where there isn't something you can put a coin into and get something out of it, whether it's entertainment or a candy bar or a gumball, right? So there's, um, we're present everywhere. And we occur mostly as a faceless industry. You know, when you're in that Walmart, you assume that that game is owned by Walmart. Well, it's not. It's owned by a small guy who supports, who pays taxes, employs people, supports the Little League team in his community, on and on and on. And small business is a touchstone for legislators. They love small business. By the way, we manufacture here in the United States. Oh, you do. We certainly do. And we export. Oh, you do. Those are all really strong yeah. messages to send to, to Congress. So, yeah, and we I do think, three times a year. And I think the small business thing really resonates because, you know, I, I, like almost everybody in the VR, location-based VR, these are all like pure, true entrepreneurial startups. And, yeah, I got and that. And guys yeah. have gotten money from mom and dad or friends and family or whatever or, or their own savings account to build their product. And, yeah. and so I think there's a real commonality there. Yeah, I don't disagree. Moving forward, we're going to have a keynote speaker. The one we picked this year is Howard Kahn. He is in the VC business, works very closely with the water park industry, knows our industry very well, having grown mm -hmm. up in it. And uh, before he joined his current organization, he was uh, a principal at Madison Square Garden. 
and transform that from really a, a dilapidated facility into the place that Billy Joel does a hundred concerts a year. You know, I mean, and I think he was uh, instrumental in setting that all up. So yeah. really a, a bright guy. And again, a, a real nice message that's going to be presented from him. Then we have our gala and awards dinner. We, in addition to having a, a business organization, the AAMA representing the business of the amusement industry, we have a charitable foundation. And our charitable foundation does really good work. I'm very proud of the work that we do with the charity. We uh, primarily donate. First of all, administrative costs are often a concern about, you know, when I give to charity, where's that money going to? You know, you look at, uh, I, I saw something, I don't know if it's true or not, but the CEO of Goodwill is paid 700 and some odd thousand dollars a year. Okay. We have no administrative costs outside of production costs. So we have to, if they have to- Oh, come on. You know, you make at least $700,000. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Well, I, if I do, it'll be from the AAMA. <laughs> And not from the AAMCF. <laughs> we donate our time from AAMA to support the charity. And, you know, this year we've, we're, you know, for a little organization, we have a target to raise $200,000 through an initiative that's a, an honorary ad journal for uh, Ralph Coppola. A lot of you guys may not know who Ralph Coppola was. Ralph uh, tragically passed away over the Christmas holiday of a heart attack that was not expected. And he is the founder of ICE, Innovative Concepts and Entertainment. And there's not a FEC you can go into on the planet that doesn't have that doesn't have 20, 30 percent of the games in there are ice products. He's made a remarkable impact on the business. And we're honoring him with this with our Lifetime Achievement Award. And part of that honor is a souvenir ad journal where people can take ads out, you know, in honor of Ralph. The proceeds from that outside of production costs, which are minimal, will all be donated to charities. And the charities we work with go to the people that support us. So we go to families with children in need children with cancer, children with physical disabilities, children that are affected by disasters. So we really target our charities, our charity work to the exact same people that support our industry. That's the end of part two of this interview. Part three is up next.